Welcome to Radio Utopistan and the second part of our episode on how to deal with right-wing extremism and extremists. In the first part, we shared stories of three guys whose lives somehow revolve around right-wing extremism. There was one man who devoted his life to fighting neo-Nazis. Because in his teenage years, he couldn't quite understand how anybody could fall for this, as he calls it, narrow-minded ideology. The second man? He spent his teenage years and more inside the inner circles of right-wing extremism in Germany. And the third man? He spent his adolescent years as a child of migrants, dealing with racism and neo-Nazis. And now he's dealing with this in his texts. So if you haven't already, maybe you can check out the first episode before you continue listening. It makes it easier to understand, I guess. If we don't have an utopia to say, okay, a change is possible, the end is an ongoing war situation on narratives and ideologies. So, but if we say, okay, we have an utopia, you could change and you could be a part of our society, It's a quite opposite utopia of their narratives. You couldn't change everything. So if there's a chance to do something, okay, please try. But also reflect, maybe there's no chance to do something and then it is a, a waste of time for you. Then we published the video and the video gone viral and... And that was a great success, not the 10,000 euros. They are nice. It's like you need these 10,000 euros like on poker. 30,000 organized neo-Nazi. It isn't enough for a revolution. If we talk about the ideology and the manifest and all the video and we analyze it and, and picture on picture, we do the job for these terrorists. Because they're growing They're growing in that moment we speak on their ideology, on their ideas. So we have to find different ways on an abstract level to speak on their topics. The story of the victim, it's much more, um, you have to do something. You, the, the evil is gone, so in that moment maybe the perpetrator get killed or get into jail or whatever. The evil is gone, it's solved. So now you can think about the story and you can think about the, the mindsetting of this guy and try to find solutions for it. But the story of the victims isn't over. So it's easier to read the story of the perpetrator because it's over. There's no active part. I didn't have to do something. And the story of the victim reminded me to change something, to do something, to help or whatever. And that's quite more active and quite more difficult. Today and in this episode, we discuss facts and strategies on what to do about extremism and extremists. How to deal with this loud auntie, for example, at your family parties, who is always complaining about refugees. Or what to say to that fellow student who is posting really humiliating stuff on Facebook. Or what to do about this annual Nazi demonstration with torches and unbearable chanting in your hometown. And Why do people become extremists in the first place anyway? In the end, I will give you a summary of the strategies. So if you're in for quick fixes, you can fast forward to the last five minutes of this episode. 
But as you might be aware and if you remember Chulu Fulu Gulu Mulu from the first part, there are seldom quick fixes or easy answers for huge problems like extremism. But we need to start somewhere, I guess. So here we start with a question from the community. Maybe it's the question you handed in. Fabian Wichmann will answer it. He's working for Exit Germany since something like 15 years now. They are helping extremists to leave their scenes, neo-Nazis and since recent years also some radical Islamists. Exit is also helping neighborhoods to get rid of extremism. In Germany and since recent years also on EU level with a radicalization awareness network. Because most countries in the EU are facing the same problem in one way or the other. A rising of nationalism, a rising of right-wing groups, and also still some radical Islamists left, even though the global scene of Islamism is not really attacking Europe that much anymore. Fabian, he's more an expert on right-wing radicalism. We collected some questions before we came and one question was that is it also some kind of an addiction when you are within an extremist group, an extremist point of worldview and if you sense it again, if you smell it again like with alcohol or have a sip of it that it's easy to get drawn back into this mindset? Normally not. So if people choose to leave the scene, it's normally done. So if there is a clear motivation to do this, it isn't like, like drugs or something like this. There's no physical addition, addiction. So often people try to say, okay, it's quite similar to drugs because you have to change your whole life and then if you see a demonstration, maybe you want to attend there or whatever. No, it isn't in that way. It is, sure, you, you, you lose your complete environment, your friends, your comradeship, your sometimes your family you you lose your yeah political narrative you you lose everything at one point but you get something new that's one point um, so you, you don't need to go back and they're very aware of the problems in the group um, they're very aware of the dangers in the group so a normal people who have left these groups there's no no point of addiction and, and going back or something Sometimes something like strategically going back. So trying to get out and see if there are some problems and say, okay, no, I go back and try the way in the comradeship because um, there are some financial reasons or whatever. If there's a core motiva motivation or something like this, I never had this case that people go back because of their beliefs. It's an easier worldview, no? I mean, it's easy you can blame someone for all the things the circumstances in the world or even in your life and uh, it's very black and white it's, it's easier to live in a mindset of, of extremism than in a very kaleidoscope like mindset no? Maybe but if we look a little deeper it isn't easy because um, you are surrounded by enemies the whole day so it's their, the government the, your neighbor um, the Antifa um, the politicians, everybody is your, your enemy. So every time you are in a crisis with your in your um, environment, so it isn't easy for you. So maybe you, you had some easy solutions for complex problems in the world, but the price is to live in a constant crisis situation because of these enemies and the problems of the world. And there's no solution 
you hadn't the chance to, to change something. Maybe you go to a demonstration or to a rally or whatever every Sunday, but it doesn't change something. So at one point you will recognize you couldn't change with this way something and maybe you get some doubts on these solutions uh, and also on these narratives. But I think it isn't easy. So Because also in the... Um, Hardcore neo-Nazi groups are not part of the mainstream, not part of the major society. So they are on the side and they knew it. They tried to say, okay, we are their chosen few, something like this. Um, but they knew that they are on the side of this um, society. Um, and I think there's also a point to think about why and what. And so I think it isn't easy. So let me hand in some facts and figures here so it's easier to put into context what Fabian is saying. Globally, so all around the world, there has been a rise of 320% in right-wing terrorism in the last five years. That's what the UN Securities Council's Counterterrorism Committee says. We'll link everything in the show notes again. So 320% rise of right-wing terrorism within the last five years. Right-wing or far-right terrorism, extremism, is not a coherent or easily defined movement, but rather a shifting, complex and overlapping milieu of individuals, groups and movements, online and offline, supporting different but related ideologies, often linked by hatred and racism toward minorities, xenophobia, Islamophobia or anti-Semitism. And just within the last two years, we had these large-scale terrorist attacks in Christchurch in New Zealand, in El Paso in the US, and in Halle and Hanau in Germany. EXIT, the organization Fabian is working for, has been around for 20 years now and claims to have helped some 800 people to leave extremist circles, mostly neo-Nazis, but in recent years also there have been some Islamists. In Germany, the Federal Agency for State Protection says there are about 12,500 right-wing extremists who are ready to use violence. There are different figures on the number of victims, though. According to journalists and the foundation working on the topic, they claim that right-wing extremists have killed about 200 people since 1990. Government agencies don't even count half as much. So, not even a hundred victims. They have different measurements for what is a murderer out of extremism or out of other motives. And of course, they then take different countermeasures or no countermeasures at all. There is an example on our Instagram account if you want to know more about that. And just in the last two years, there were three undeniable and very deadly terrorist attacks in Germany. The assassination of an acting politician a terror attack against a synagogue in a Turkish restaurant in Halle, and a terror attack against a shisha bar in Hanau. The often so-called lone perpetrators, sometimes they are even called lone wolves, they act within a network, a transnational network. They are inspired by the international white supremacy movement, like by the attacks in the US, New Zealand and Norway. They are themselves seeking to mobilize others, often using the internet. And everywhere you find the combination of white supremacist violence and vicious anti-immigrant racism. You also heard it through the ex-Nazi in part one of this episode. 
Later, after the rise of right-wing extremist parties and the populist party, I asked myself, where is that hatred against people coming from? There is no reason. Which of my problems is actually related to refugees? Not one. And then there is racism and right-wing extremism within the system. Here, just a little sneak peek into the German system. The last two years, journalists revealed several extremist groups and even illegal ammunition within the police and military. One state premier had to leave office because he bought a weapon from someone linked to extremist circles. This does, of course, not mean all cops are racists. Also, there is a huge difference between the German police and the US police, for example. And then there is this German National Party, AFD, sitting in various parliaments in German democracy. Parts of them are under surveillance, because the Federal Agency for State Protection classifies them as right-wing extremists. But now back to Fabian. First, I thought, okay, to help these people, there is a chance to, to change the whole system. So if we work harder... There will be no neo-Nazis or no nationalism anymore, but I think it doesn't work. So, And over the years I recognized, no, it isn't the way of changing the, the whole world or Germany or whatever. It's maybe to help people to change on their personal level. So if there is someone who wants to leave to change their lives, to help them it's enough. And that's for me a little utopia because normally if you think by your own, you say... I never changed my mind, I never changed my beliefs. And you see, these people said it before also. They said, I never want to change my life, I never changed my narrative. So they, they had a tattoo on, on their bodies like Muerte or Patria. And they, they wear it very proud as a neo-Nazi and later they reflect and say, okay, they left the scene, but they didn't die. So to choose a different way of life without this ideological background doesn't end in a suicide or something like this. But they believed before in it. Yeah, and also in, on our side to see that people could change. There's a chance to change and there's a need to change because it's their biggest narrative of a democracy to say, okay, there's someone who had failed in the past, but we as a society will give a chance to change something and we are open to people who have changed they um, have changed their views and they are now part of our society and that's for me a small part but a very important part of our democracy and do this bigger change on a lower level with single persons it took a lot more time to do this but it's much more connected to the idea of democracy and, and an open society. So we could also try to arrest all until they think a little bit different. We put them into jail or whatever, but I think it doesn't work because they will think they are prisoners for their ideology, for their idea, they are fighting for freedom. So if you put them into jail, it's a part of the narrative. So I think this way of working and on doubts and with the people, it's much more effective. At least it's more part of our uh, law system also. 
And did you already see also maybe a little change within the system or in the society and then in which direction? I think in the in the early years it was more like um, okay they they try to help these neo Nazis maybe nice idea but it doesn't work or don't help them they never changed some years later there are also skeptical voices okay that's quite important to have skeptical voices but there are also voices or people they say okay it worked so there are people they change they live a new life so. I think there's a little bit of change to, to see in the society that is more accepted to do the work than, than years before. And we see also there's a need to do something like this. If I think on returnees from ISIS, we have to have a utopia of a democracy for these people, also for these German neo-Nazis. Because if we don't have an utopia to say, okay, a change is possible, the end is an ongoing war situation on narratives and ideologies so but if we say okay we have an otp you could change and you could be a part of our society it's a quite opposite otp of their narratives coming back from isis or whatever they say they are the enemies the western democracies they are the enemies or the neo-nazis say their the democrats are the enemies and if you say no you're, we are not the enemies but if you want to take be a part of it it's no problem that changed a lot and it's very important also for our uh, yeah, constitution as a democracy. And how how does that work? How can you raise those doubts? Because that's how I understood it where you see the, the door opener to change the minds of extremists. Because this guy I was talking to yesterday, he said like if, if anybody had told me anything five years ago I would not have listened to anyone even my mom my girlfriend no one I, I just would not listen so how how does it work how can you open those doors now these the, to, to open the doors is a part of the person himself we could only provide an idea a narrative of exit people could change something like this it's the, the bigger narrative we could um, raise awareness for the offer to get help to leave the scene um, we could deliver some stories of farmers. They say, okay, a change is possible. And they knew some doubts in the scene and they knew these points. And they could speak or write on these doubts, on these problems in these comradeships. And at least there has to be a person who are hearing, reading or whatever these stories from farmers and This person had to know about there's an idea of exit. But as in the major society, everybody had some doubts in his life. So you, you do something and you knew, okay, it isn't the right way to do this. But I have to do it because there's no chance right now to, to do it in a different way or I do it since years in that way. Why should I change something? I knew it would be better, but it's quite hard or whatever. And that's the same there. They, they knew there are some problems and they see the problems in the comradeship. They wouldn't tell them. They wouldn't say, okay, I think it's a little bit stupid how you, you do this or you, you think on that topic or I don't like your ideology or whatever. They wouldn't do because it's a, a bubble. So, But these thoughts are there and um, they don't articulate it. But we could address it with these formers, with these campaigns, with the major narrative. It doesn't change something in the moment. But 
they see these stories every and every day and um, knew about it. And if these doubts in the person getting stronger, they will read this. They will read the books. Maybe they will hear the stories or watch the stories of formers in TV. And then that's the moment something changed. But there, the first doubt or the first moment of, of doubt had to be in the person herself or himself. And is there... Of course, they have all different stories and backgrounds and different reasons and motivations, but is there nevertheless one core pattern or mechanism or approach where you say, if you're not sure how to talk to those people, always go onto the, I don't know, friendly side, criticizing or talking about facts or not talking about the facts at all or... Is there something that's, of course, not always working, but if you have a doubt, then you go back to this pattern? No, I don't think so. So it's depending every time on, on, on the person. So we had clients from very violent, less educated, up to um, non-violent, high-educated, or lawyers, or whatever. So it's a very, very wide spectrum of clients. So I have to every time I have to do, yeah to adjust my own way of speaking and of engaging with the person because of these different backgrounds. So I, I could not use the same pattern with a violent extremist and a non-violent extremist. And so I have to be authentic and I have to to use different patterns for every single one. And if there is some pattern. That is something like be authentic because you want some some authentic information and you want some authentic emotions and, and doubts from the clients so be also authentic be careful but also be authentic in communicating with these people and maybe don't hang on your prejudices or patterns so knew this work with this but but It isn't good to have this as a navigation system or something like this. So it's something like also being a little bit open-minded in working or engaging with them. And how easy or hard is it for you to build a connection to those people? I guess you met some people that had done some really horrible stuff or still have some very racist and um, dehumanization mindsets that are with them at the table when you sit with them? How do you deal with it? How do you build a connection? Or do you sometimes not manage to build a connection? Or is that even an aim for you to build a connection? Or not always? Uh, we need this connection. So sometimes it worked quite good. And you see there is something like a, yeah, a connection. So you, it's easy to do this. And sometimes it's quite hard because people don't, don't speak or they speak a not so much or whatever you see they hide something or whatever and that's quite hard if they confront me with racist idea normally it isn't a problem for me so because it isn't the point to to bring me on aggression or something like this it is okay you think so let us speak about it the last time someone said to me so he was a, a neo-nazi and also he was um, addicted on drugs and he were in a rehabilitation center and one day he, he's gone to the next village because he, he 
tries to get a flat because he wants to start a new life and out of the rehab. And um, yeah, he goes to this uh, flat and, and, and asks them because he wants to hire this flat. And they said, no, I knew you come from this rehabilitation center and I don't trust them. And he was very angry about it. And, and two sentences later he said, but... In the same moment, I see all these Muslim women and they get everything. And I said to him, okay, now you see the same prejudices you used for these Muslim women worked against you because they thought you are part of this rehabilitation center and they don't want to, to give you or to, to let you hire a flat because they don't believe in your change and they think you are like the others. Uh, and he said, okay, yeah, that's right. Also, he's, he's saying, um, yeah, these Muslim getting off everything and he, he had nothing. Yeah, but this guy never worked since he was a young guy. Having this drug abuse, was in jail because of a crime, or long time in, crime, uh, long time in jail. And that now he's in a rehabilitation center. So maybe the society paid since, I don't know, 25 years for him and his life. And he doesn't reflect on it. So he only sees, okay, the other get more or they get and I don't get. But to see if there's something like this, it, it's normal to be confronted with these parts of, or yeah, these types of racism. Hard is to, to work with people who are murderers or to, to reflect on these crimes or to try to, yeah... To, to help these people to reflect these crimes. That's quite hard to... You, you sit there maybe and you eat something together and you, you speak about funny stuff um, on the street or I don't know. And the next moment you, you think about, okay, this guy killed someone years before and you see the pictures in your mind. And that's quite strange to, to combine these both stories, to eat there and laugh together. And in your head are these pictures of this murdering. That's strange. Can you still have respect for those people then? Or I guess you have, otherwise you cannot build a connection. I think that there's respect. I don't respect these uh, crimes or the ideology of the crime or the narrative of the crime. I respect the person now and I respect their motivation of change little or more but I, I respect this motivation and I try to, to divide a little bit to say okay yeah there, there is your story and it is every day or it's every time a part of your story and we couldn't delay it but now there's a different time a different person and we have to work with this part of your identity of your history not with this old part so there's sure a proper respect for people who want to work on their biography. I don't respect people who are doing such a crime and don't reflect it. There's no respect. But people who are thinking about uh, to change something, they need this respect because they need also something to, to build on and respect is something good to build on. And what would be your recommendation for uh, people outside? Like when you have a neighbor, when you go to family gatherings, I'm sure not everybody is meeting extremists and not, real Nazi hardcore people. But I mean, you, it starts very soon, right? How to, brings me back to the old question, how to talk to those people, confront them, make fun of them, put irony in, 
always respect or just not talk or of course it's diff it depends like you said but you have recommendations for people who do not have your experience I don't believe that I every time had the right pattern or to the right way to deal with this person. Sometimes I had also to try and to see, okay, it doesn't work. I have to try a different way and maybe that also doesn't work. So it's also for me, not every time, but often it's something to think about new ways. And But it, that's life. And I think to deal with this, people, it always depends on which, in which situation, um, in which relationship you are. So if it's your relative or your kid or your your yeah whatever a part of your family it's different you couldn't joke on it you couldn't troll him every day um, troll your son or your your daughter or making fun of him it, it, it doesn't work so at one point they will close the door and say fuck you so i think that's not the right way but to criticize other relative or a mother or father to criticize the ideology to have a constant critical discussion on it, sure. But also have a look that they that you don't lose the relationship. So you don't close the door, let the door a little bit open. Because also these groups are trying to to isolate people like if there's a confrontation with the family, the rest of the group try to isolate their son or the, the daughter and they try to, to push the conflict because it's useful and if there's a conflict it's better to bring this person in the group because it's easier to work with the person in that way so as a mother I would say try always to have a, a relationship um, as mother and son or mother and, and daughter otherwise you, you, you're losing your child at one point and you will never find a way to get it back as society I think there are different ways to yeah, to engage to deal or whatever with these kind of narratives so there are ways of doing it funny because to empower your own group to break the narrative of the group the, the propaganda narrative so fun and jokes are might be in also a way but not on a personal level so if you are do it on a personal level it doesn't work so people getting angry but on a level of a group or whatever it would work but also we're critical just doing jokes on it doesn't work at the end so you have to be also critical and have to have alternatives and have to have alternative worldviews and narratives to share with them because you couldn't say that's not the right way without propagating a better way or something alternative so that is what you have to have. A neighborhood, I don't know. So if you had a little relationship to this person, maybe you are the right person to speak to him, to say, okay, I don't like what you say, but I like you as a person. Let us speak about it. But also every time uh, be ensured that you couldn't change everything. So if there is a chance to do something, okay, please try. But also reflect, maybe there is no chance to do something and then... It is a, a waste of time for you. Maybe for a different person it's easier, but for you maybe it's a waste of time. So don't hang on it. Protect the energy. Yeah. You want to roll a cigarette? Yeah. <laughs> Please go for it. So while Fabian is rolling a cigarette, I would like to add another quick insertion here on who and why people get radicalized. 
There are various studies about it. I'll link some in the show notes. What I find most interesting about different types of radicalism and extremism is that they have common patterns, especially with far-right and radical Islamism. Far-right extremism and radical Islamism resemble one another regarding their formation conditions, their ideology, their structure, and also their actions. There are parallels in terms of authoritarian leadership, domination, anti-feminism, homophobia and sexism. Also what makes you turn towards an extremist group are similar patterns and needs, like the search for identity and belonging, feeling of worthlessness, fear of failure and victimhood. But of course, at the end, the manifestations and expressions are different. As a migrant kid, you would rather turn towards other migrant kids. And as a white middle class kid, you rather look for other white middle class kids. And of course, as always, you have exceptions. There are white middle class jihadis and POCs who are racist. But that means when looking for solutions, you can address these core needs of those people. The search for identity belonging and worthiness. It was 2011. We discussed with our partner how we could yeah, offer our project, how could we reach our target group. Um, and then we thought, okay, we, we do something like an... Um, well, we have to address them in a quite different situation. And then we developed a T-shirt. It, now it's called the Trojan T-shirt. The what, sorry? The Trojan. The Trojan, Trojan T-shirt. I'll tell you the story. And we, we developed 200 t-shirts with our print-like national and free hardcore rebels and black flags and a skull and all that stuff. And I write to, a, I write to the organizer of our uh, right-wing rock festival here in Turinja and said, okay, I have, in my free time I do some free printings and I have some stuff for you, t-shirts. I printed it. And maybe please give it away for the first people who came to your festival, to your neo-Nazi rock festival, as a gift for the first. And I, I want to support the idea, I want to support the, the movement, but I couldn't do this in public because it's too dangerous for me and my family. So that was my story for um, the guy. And at least we sent these t-shirts and they are very happy about it and um, give it away and they wear the t-shirt on the festival and yeah, they're very happy about these t-shirts. And then they washed it. So. And they see that the t-shirt changed completely. So the first print with these skulls and flags was gone and there was a second print like what your t-shirt can do you could also do. We help you to leave the right-wing scene called Exit Germany. And that is the idea of getting into a complete different situation bring up your idea your narrative your story your offer and the t-shirt changed that doesn't change somebody they don't think okay i see these t-shirts now i have to change my life no it's only to see exit and uh, yeah this idea going viral and people discuss it and the next meeting we speak okay it was nice let us try something new and we discuss the idea of combining the charity march with the neo-nazi neo -Nazi march so let these neo-nazis march for a good cause and that was the yeah the birth hour of this idea so we developed these nazis against nazis the first involuntary charity march and the idea was to choose a town it was Wunsiedl in 2014 
and we said, okay, for every meter these neo-Nazis walk on this march, we we find people who donate for it. So people from the village or from other towns donate for it, and the neo-Nazis are a part of the game because they walk, and for every meter they donate indirectly the money. So if they stop the demonstration, there's no money. If they walk, there's the full amount of donations. And then we, we made some banners. Um, we also do a stand with bananas and saying, okay, you have to be quite fit to walk the whole distance, so please take some bananas. And we make some signs on the streets with thanks for 2,500 euro and all that stuff. At the end, we had a confetti cannon. We had our goal line and we had our certificate for for the people that walked there um, and all that stuff. And we made a video out of it, some small video about, I think, uh, three minutes or something like this. And they walked the whole distance, 10,000 euros. And then we published the video and the video gone viral. And, and that was a great success, not the 10,000 euros. They are nice. It's like you need these 10,000 euros like on poker. But that the idea has gone viral, so people does the same rally in Sweden, in America, in England, in different countries, also in different towns here in Germany. They, they use the mechanic of let them involuntary march, or march against themselves, because the money was for exit. The money was for exit, so they, they walked for a good cause and against um, her own idea. And they use these mechanics to um, to do this in, in different countries, in different towns. We later do it online, on, on Facebook posts, on hate comments. And now we had raised more than 120,000 euros for refugees and for exit. So it works quite good. So And that's only that yeah, donations connected to exit. There are quite more I think in, in, in San Francisco there was a planned rally of the Kukuk's clan the old right and they had more than 250,000 dollars wow. in this fundraiser um, to see that people could be motivated to do something good because there's something bad that's for me not only to say okay there's something bad and I couldn't change something it's worse but okay no to say I try to change something and maybe it's a donation or maybe it's to be to do some, something as a volunteer or whatever that changed or that will change something in the system but to go ahead and say yeah it's quite bad I knew doesn't change something yeah so you found a very beautiful way to spread this positive mindset to spread mm -hmm. this possibility of change yeah yep. Yeah, and the change of everybody and the idea to say making something good out of bad. Yeah. So not believing in, in the bad will win or whatever. Or it's not my job to do something. Maybe someone else could do like um, Homer Simpson. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone else could do. Now it is on your own to change something and uh, in different ways. Maybe in small steps, maybe with donations, maybe with different ways, but it's on your own. And how do you see the interconnection between the extremist side? So is it really the rim of society and the society or how is that interwoven? I mean, I mean, they, the extremists all rise from some kind of society. How, how do you see that connection? 
I think there's a connection. So we, we couldn't say that's outside our society or isn't a part of it. So we we see there are very yeah there are some outsiders, um, some standalones under, but they also people who are part of our major society. So there's a connection in these smaller groups in these comradeships. And they try always to address the major society and they, they try to use public narratives, yeah, actual discussions. They try to use the words, they try to address the problems people in the major society discuss. So they need it because if we think about, we have in Germany, now it's more than um, 30,000 organized neo-Nazi. So it isn't enough for a revolution. If you start a revolution, that number wouldn't work. So you need more people, so that means you have to address the major society. And that is what major society or yeah, have to be aware. Because the idea of these smaller groups, of these extremist groups, is to engage with them, to instrumentalize these major society for their own ideas. We see it every time also on small demonstrations. So we, right now we have these demonstrations of people who are denying corona or they are skeptical against corona or the, they, they don't believe in it and they don't believe in their political system in connection to corona and all that stuff. And we see also there are some extremist group or a neo-Nazis group. They try to use this protest because they need more people. So they try to, to spread their narratives. They try to to use the moment because they say okay now is the moment we could engage with more people we could we could bind some people on our idea so if we go there if we try to support these demonstrations it might be a good idea for us so that is what we see right now and and society but also these people who don't believe in corona or whatever they have to be aware that they also could be a part of this um, instrumentalization from these neo-Nazi groups. So. Yeah, yeah, and also the other direction is uh, what I find more fascinating and also dangerous in a way that within a society where it's more and more normal to hear racist speech, mm. to see racist tattoos, to see racist stickers on cars, the real Nazis are more eager to be open about how they are or they they grow easier or how would you say isn't it also from this direction you were talking from the from the direction from the neo-nazi scene mm. within society mm. but how do you see the the other side mm. i mean they give them some kind of a basis no mm. yeah if we see some and it is the the using of words and it is the using of of narratives so Yeah, there's an idea of some narratives or words. Um, years ago, we, we said, well, you couldn't say this. Now it's sometimes okay to say this. And these developments are also reflected from these hardcore neo-Nazi groups. But they don't profit right now. So what we see is we have a rising of the right populism. And these hardcore neo-Nazis or these comradeships and other parties, they are stuck on a level they don't grow or whatever and they hope if there's something is a change with their populist they maybe the populists are a gun then that's the time for these hardcore neo-nazis because they see these populism something like a pioneer politics pioneer ideology whatever and they after after then they see 
their chance to change something in the world because their narratives are spread, the ideas are spread, the words are spread and that's the idea to connect on these narratives, on this yeah, changings through these populist parties and that's the hope that they will benefit after afterwards of these changings in society or public but I think right now they had no chance to do this because we see the NPD is more and more losing they are ir irrelevant uh, mostly in, in Germany because of the populism mostly the people say okay why should I go to why should I vote for the NPD it sh doesn't change anything so I vote for the populist parties like the AFD it will change much more You about the right-wing attacks now, those lone wolves? That's a different, yeah, that's a different topic. So that's what I described, it's mm -hmm. only the, the political part of it. Yeah. On the other hand, we had something like a rising of attacks because of this changed narrative, of these changed discussions. Because some people, as are yeah, mostly described as a lone wolf, I don't believe in that lone wolf. It's also something like, ah, oh, the lone wolf, it's such, such a romantic picture. So maybe the lone actor, but lone is, isn't alone. There's a lot of people in the background, maybe not physically, but on the internet or whatever. So he believes that he is part of a bigger system and he had to change something. And his role is to do something maybe quite violent, but it has to be an action with attention. So he tries to raise attention, he tries to raise awareness on his politics or on his ideology on his worldview and that's the big problem because these people see their news these people see their discussions on the internet these people at one point they think i am their messias i am their one and only and i will change the whole system like breivik like tarrant like halle here in germany they think Everything depends on his action. And this action will change the world. And it's legitimized of these discussions here. So, and that's, that's a what real I meant threat. With this, yeah. with this reverse influence from yeah. society to, yeah. to the rib of the extremists. Yeah. So, what would be a good way of a society to react from the media? I mean, would you suggest for media how they should approach this thing? This is what we were talking mm. on the phone. Is mm. it if you talk to those people, is it then giving them a platform mm. or is it revealing their really narrow-minded ideology? Nah, I think views, it's also, also depends. depends. On the, yeah, <laughs> I think it depends uh, always on everything. Yeah, no, it isn't, isn't, <laughs> I think it, it, it depends on the context. So yeah. if, we, if we deliver the ideology, the narratives of, of the person. So if they made a video like in Halle or in New Zealand or whatever or a manifest like in Oslo and if we, we, we spread these ideas if we spread the pictures of them if we spread the names and all that stuff this is part of their idea this part of their system so they think I do this um, terror attack and after that they had to read my books they had to see my video and they will spread it all over the world and I'm getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I think that is a mechanism we had to stop we, we don't have to do the job for them so we don't have to spread the ideology we had, don't have to 
also in a, in a, in a critical way. But if we, we talk about the ideology and the manifest and all the video and we analyze it and, and picture on picture, we do the job for these terrorists because they're growing. They're growing in that moment we speak on their ideology, on their ideas. So we have to find different ways on an abstract level to speak on the topics. We don't have to share their the articles, we don't have to share pictures of these people or the videos. And on the other hand, I think we had to spread and to, to share the stories of the victims. We often discuss all these strange ideas of these persons because it's interesting for us. But we don't speak about the stories of the victims. So I knew a lot about, okay, it's my job, but mostly all the rest also of the society knews a lot of the perpetrators. They knew about the school, about the father, the mother, the last meal, the last days, maybe how it looks in his, in his room or whatever, and how it is in jail and how, how is the hairdress, um, something completely stupid and, and irrelevant stuff we knew. But often we don't knew about the victims. We don't knew about the life after the terror attack. And it isn't only in right-wing extremism. It's the same on Islamistic extremism. So we don't knew about the victims of their terror attack here in Berlin. So they, they had a real hard struggle to get some um, money because nobody wants to deal with this. Because I think it's very strange to see this and... It, it, couldn't be that we threatened these these victims in that way. Yeah, maybe it's because there's fascination for the evil. That's And one point, yeah, sure, that's this fascination for the evil, but on the other hand, I think it's the story of the victim, it's much more you have to do something. You, the, the evil is gone, so in that moment, maybe the perpetrator get killed or get into jail or whatever, the evil is gone, it's solved. So now you can think about the story and you can think about the, the mindset of this guy and try to find solutions for it. But the story of the victims isn't over. So at that moment, the story of the perpetrator ended, the story of the victims began. And, and that's quite longer, because they have to live uh, the rest of their lives with this terror attack. And that's quite difficult for the people, because there's also a call to action. You, you, you think about the story and you knew, okay, I have to do something. I have to engage with this problem. I have to change something or whatever. And that's, I think, that's the, the difficult point. So it's easier to read the story of the perpetrator because it's over. There's no active part. I didn't have to do something. And the story of the victim reminded me to change something, to do something, to help or whatever. And that's quite more active and quite more difficult. Yeah, and uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Because it can happen again also. Yeah. When, yeah. when the perpetrator is gone, yeah. it's over. But yeah. the victims are still here and there yeah. can come another perpetrator. Yeah. So yeah. Let's have a look at the time. Then. Oh, 1423, okay. Shit. You have to go. The last, <laughs> last question. What's a Nazi for you? Because this term is thrown all over the place these days. So mm. you already called a Nazi when you say mm. black life matters. Oh, no, all lives are matter. And then somebody says, oh, you're a Nazi. Mm. So what's, what's a Nazi for you? The, the term is used very wide. It's used to describe a Nazi, mm. but it's also used as a... A schimpfwort, something like a... What's schimpfwort? Schimpfwort, like an insult. Yeah, something like this. Someone. Yeah. And for me it's quite different because 
it's more like um, it's a level on ideology, on narratives, on different types of narratives and ideologies. So they don't believe in they don't believe in one single ideology. So they are more parts of anti-Semitism, racism, nationalism. So they are all parts of this ideology and different parts of it. Also, they have to be a, a core motivation of changing the whole system, believe in a change, and they will propagate and do the change with or without violence. So that's also a big or um, important part of this system of belief. And they have to be a clear connection to the, to the third rich, a positive connection, a positive inspiration of this third rich so that's for me in some bullet points a Nazi but otherwise there are big discussions about if it is a neo-Nazi or is it a Nazi or could we say Nazi so I think it's a popular term to, to describe something and many people use it very inflative so they use it for everything I think it isn't the right way because If you say to somebody, okay, you are a Nazi, at least he will say, okay, you think I'm a Nazi, so I, I'm the Nazi. So just as a protest. And the other thing is, this term is, is describing a special group normally, and we have to describe these different groups very, very clear. So otherwise we, we don't have the right ways to handle it. We address them in a false way. If we only say, okay, that's all the same, speak to them or not, it's all the same. It doesn't work in that way. So I think for this term, there's racism, dehumanization, nationalism, anti-Semitism, and the use of violence. Then the will to change the system with or without violence. Yeah, with some bullet points. Yeah. Okay, then last question. What can people do within the next 24 hours if they want to support your utopia? Something? I'm, I think small. at first something small is mm -hmm. to think about the idea of doing something because that's the, the starting point of everything. I don't want to say do something like this or do something like this because I don't know these people. So think about doing something and think about what's the best way to do something for you. What are your resources to do something? In what field of work or what are you, you best? And what, what could you share in that field? Or how could others benefit from this? And start at that point to think about helping or doing something. I think that would change a lot if everybody thinks about where is my part of changing some bad into good? Um, I think that will change a lot. Okay, now we could open a whole new topic with the question, what's bad and what's good? Yeah. But I think we're going to leave that. <laughs> Do you have something to add? Oh, no. No. No, it was nice okay. to, to think about these questions. Thank so, you. thanks. Yeah, it was nice to think about those questions, no? So now, as promised, the summary. What we can do against extremism? Of course, there are no quick fixes again. And it so depends on your environment, on your country, your possibilities and talents. And often there are also security issues, so be careful. 
But maybe there's something on this list that suits you and your situation. And it's not just from Fabian or the other two guys here, but also from recent years of working on that topic and talking to various social workers, scientists and activists about it. Okay, so here we go. First, there are different layers on which you can take actions for change. A, in your very personal and private life. The strange auntie who is complaining about refugees at your family gatherings, for example, or that horrible comment on social media. And then B, within the system. If you're living in somewhat of a democracy, those politicians are meant to be there for you. Write letters, go to anti-extremist demonstrations, sign petitions, start a petition, make your voice heard and join an existing movement. Police and the education system are two institutions where there can be done a lot against extremism, for example. See? So we had personal level, structural level, and now storytelling. Change the narrators. With your posts on social media, within your workplace, your family and friends circles, every day you decide on what you want to talk about and how you want to talk about it. Is it about separation and domination or about inclusion? About perpetrators or victims? About problems or about solutions? Symptoms or causes? Of course, they are all interconnected, but you know what I mean. Two, so we had the layers, now what can you do? How you can act. First, make sure you feel comfortable with what you are about to do and that you have enough energy for it. It can be very exhausting engaging in that topic. Three, how to talk to extremists or to people who are about to slip into extremism. Again, it depends on where you're at. What's your relationship with that person? If you are very close, like brother and sister, try not to lose contact with that person. And also, again, only if you have the energy, of course, and only if you want to do that. And then be aware, facts and arguments don't often help, especially when you don't have proper training. If you talk about facts, be calm. Don't make accusations. Rather, try to understand the person than to convince them. If you are not that close, questions often help more than arguments. For example, Why exactly do you think refugees are making your life miserable? Or what's your source for that? But this is exhausting because it almost never ends. And another really helpful insight for this one, at least it helps me a lot. You cannot change people. You can only change yourself. That also means people, they can only change themselves. You can only set boundaries. To accept that takes away a lot of pressure, not only with extremists. Four, engage in building democracy and civil society. Get involved with your neighborhood. If people are looking for identity and belonging, they should find communities that are more appealing than a Nazi brotherhood or a radical religious slaughter state, don't you think? And of course, number five, Tulugulufulumulus advice from part one of this episode. Read books, novels. If I can give one tip for all people, read fucking books, man. Serious, there is no, there is no medium who can give us more than books. And then I, I had to also filter myself. You know, I had to take the shit about Kurdish people out, Greek people, Armenian, women. This is stupid. 
I'm not Turkey. You know, I'm not representing no one. Nothing. I'm representing myself. That's it. And maybe this guy also will find his identity when he's doing like this. It's not easy. And the life is not easy. You know, I, I don't respect him, but I can understand him. Life is not easy. You know, we want to be part of something. Human want to be part. I don't know why. I don't understand it. But it's so important. Want to be part in a football club. You know, like uh, wear the same colors. Part in the church. Part in a club. Part in the school. Part in, in, in everything. Not so easy then to find the identity, man. Right now he is reading, for example, Josef Roth. Check him out if you don't know him already. He describes very precisely how the atmosphere was before the Nazis took power in Germany in the 30s. Or James Baldwin, of course. He was watching us at Tülüfülü Gülümülü's kitchen table in St. Pauli, looking upon us from a postcard. A quote from him. Not everything that is faced can be changed. But nothing can be changed until it's faced. Again? Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Okay, enough for this episode. This was a lot, but by all means not a complete list of possible actions against extremism. As there are so many routes for this problem, there are also many solutions. And if there is only one thing you want to take away from this episode, Don't be like Homer Simpson. Don't say, it has nothing to do with me. Can somebody else please do something about it? As you know, a big part of this world today is rooted in white supremacy and nationalism, colonialism. So we are all somehow involved in this. Tiny things can help, because many, many tiny things, many, many tiny actions can have a huge effect like sharing stories of victims and solutions rather than stories of the perpetrators. Or what else? Do you have something that has already worked for you or your hometown? Do you have any experience with extremism, nationalism that you would like to share? What means extremism and radicalism for you anyway? And where do you see the tipping point where constructive radicalism turns into destructive radicalism? The good and the bad question from the first episode. So see, still so many questions. Please tell us, what do you think? We are always happy to hear from you. And we are also always happy if you like and share our episodes. So send it to your friends and family, to everybody who might need some utopia these days. Share it on Facebook or Instagram. Link Radio Topistan in your stories. Help to spread bold ideas and encourage visionary people. If you want to support Radio Topistan, you can do that on Patreon. There you can get some additional content and insights from behind the scenes. We are still working for free on this, so every little contribution counts. Sharing is caring, you know. Thank you on behalf of all the team. Everybody will be linked in the show notes. Some names here. Proofreading again. Wonderful, wise, witty and language-loving solitude companion Helen Kim. Producer Anushka Eckert. Music and sound Robert Pilgrim. Illustration Christina Anas. 
And thank you, Embassy of Hope at Thalia Theater for making the connection to Tulufulu Gulumulu. Thank you, Tulufulu Gulumulu. Thank you, Fabian. And thank you, Mr. No Name, who left the far right movement. Good luck for your journey. Thank you, photographer Benjamin Jenak and Veto Magazine, that we can use the picture of Fabian for free. Thank you, Cecilia Marshall, for answering quick language questions. Thank you, Elise Lanschek, for working on this topic with me for years now. Makes it easier. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. Also makes it a lot easier to produce another episode. Sharing is caring. Bye-bye.